Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Superior's Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Eric J. Siegel, Ash Family Chair Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. We will discuss his essay in progress, John Roberts, Hubris in Chief. So welcome back to the show, Eric. Thanks, Brian. It's all, I really appreciate you having me. And you have a great radio voice. If, you're, if you ever decide to leave the law professor business, get on the radio. I envy your voice. That's so, so kind of you. So I'm delighted to have you back on. You're always a great guest. And I, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work. So why don't we kind of start this conversation by just talking a little bit about the conventional wisdom about Chief Justice John Roberts. In other words, like, what do people think about him? What's sort of like this, this sort of spit take that most people have? So, so I, it's a great question. Let me just mentioned briefly that part of my career has been and continues to be trying to isolate those commonly held views about either the Supreme Court as an institution or individual justices that I think are really myths and that are dangerous myths. And so I kind of zero in on those things or try to zero into the best of my abilities on those things. A lot of people obviously disagree with much of what I say, but that's my agenda is to try to pick something that everybody thinks is true and say, wait a minute, it's really probably not true. So the conventional wisdom since 2012 about John Roberts uh, has been that he is maybe first and foremost an institutionalist uh, in two different ways. One, he cares about the long-term reputation of the Supreme Court. Nothing wrong with that, obviously, uh, necessarily. Uh, and two, he cares about his long-term reputation. And again, we all, we all are, right? And there's nothing terribly wrong with that. The difference is you and I really don't have any real power to affect people's lives. And he has tremendous power to affect people's lives. And I'm talking about healthcare and where they go to school and what they can say and what they can spend and so on. So um, I think it's so, so that's the conventional wisdom. So his vote in the first Obamacare case, um, where he ended up upholding most of the statute, striking down the Medicaid part, which is not insubstantial, but uh, but upholding the law in June before uh, in June of 2012, before the 2012 election was viewed by many people as well, if he overturns Obamacare, the signature legislation of our most current president who's running for re-election, it will be looked at as a political, you know, partisan move. And he didn't want the court to look that way. Um, and then uh, later on, of course, he also joined with Justice Kennedy in a 6-3 case, turning down a frivolous, ridiculous, absurd, John Adler, are you out there, insanely bad challenge to the ACA in King versus Burwell. Um I, and again, Roberts was joined with, that wasn't 5-4, that was 6-3, but people use that as evidence as well. And then there was one other case where he sided with the liberals in a case involving judges and free speech. Um, but, but the two main, but, but, but the two main opinions in those Obamacare cases have led, and because he's chief justice and because he comes off as an umpire, so he self-identifies, you know, which we all know is crazy. Um, okay. That's the conventional wisdom. People, at least people in the know, know he's very conservative most of the time, but he's conservative in an institutionalist kind of way. Bullshit. 
pardon my language. Can I say that here? Can I say that here? Okay. Uh, he is conservative. He is Republican. He's probably concerned about his image on the courts, but that's not what he leads with. We all lead with things. Some of my friends lead with anxiety. That's sad. Some with joy. That's good. Some with anger, some with humor, some with whatever. John Roberts, very quietly or somewhat quietly, has spent his professional career leading with hubris. And that is much more a distinguishing characteristic of this man than being an institutionalist. And maybe even more than being a Republican. Now, if he were here, I have no doubt he would say that up until the time he became a federal judge, he was a devoted, loyal Republican. I mean, you can't deny that. Again, nothing wrong with that. Certainly back then when he was a devoted lawyer Republican. Today, I'm not as sure. Um, and then he would say he left all that behind when he became chief justice, or became a judge, excuse me. And his job was to call balls and strikes. There's hubris in that. Like his, his love affair with hubris begins at his confirmation hearing. His love affair with hubris as a judge begins at his confirmation hearing for Supreme Court justice when he said, we're just umpires calling balls and strikes. Why would he think anyone would believe that? Who in 2006 or five, whenever it was, even back then, no one believed that. Now, we can disagree on how much politics and values affects the Supreme Court. And of course, I believe it's mostly that. Other people think it's only a little bit of that. No one I know thinks it's umpires calling balls and strikes. I've never met a scholar. I agree with Justice Roberts. It's just umpires calling balls and strikes. I don't know anyone who agrees with that. The point there is he's much smarter than that. So why would he say it? It takes an enormous amount of hubris to think that people will believe it. And no, anyway, so it starts there. And, um, and then in his very first term, Brian, I mean, his very first term, he decides parents involved, which is a case where Seattle and Louisville both decided that their elementary and well, Seattle was high schools and Louisville was elementary and secondary schools were not uh, desegregated that not enough kids of color were going to school with white kids, not enough white kids were going to school with kids of color. That's a problem, I know you know, that's present in Kentucky. <laughs> well, of course, one of the cities was Louisville, so you're very familiar. But this is a national problem in Boston, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, everywhere. And these two cities, under no court order, under no compulsion, parents, PTAs, school boards, students got together in both cities and worked out a way to make the public schools a little more desegregated. Why is that wrong? <laughs> Under what case? Anyway, so the conservatives, of course, thought that was affirmative action and thought that was using race, and they struck it down. We can reasonably not agree on disagree on all of that. Where the hubris part comes in is where Robert says at the very end of that opinion that the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. That sentence could be a law school exam in and of itself, as I know you know. And there's two elements to that hubris. One is um, that's a judge's job to figure that out. It's not. It's not a judge's job to figure out the best way to make up for a racist past. That's not a judge's job at all. But more importantly, I'll concede that reasonable people can disagree over affirmative. This wasn't even an affirmative action plan. But, but government policies that use race to make more diversity. All right. Justice Thomas argues that actually creates more racial tension. He argues it creates stigma. 
He argues it creates blame, back, back, you know, uh, backlash and all that stuff. I'm not here to say he, he's wrong about that. I'm not here to say he's right about that. I'm here to say it's not his job to decide that. And the idea that Roberts thinks that he knows the answer to the best way to solve our, what he can't deny, long history of racial discrimination, segregation, slavery, et cetera, that he knows the answer. And the answer is take out all racial government affirmative mechanisms to make it better, that that's going to make the world a better place is unconscionable. I would never say, like, I believe strong, I, okay, I, I take back what I said. I believe strongly in affirmative action. I also believe reasonable people can differ. And I would never say I'm right and you're wrong. But in that sentence, he was saying, I'm right and you're wrong. And it wasn't even on an issue like text or history or precedent that he had a business dealing with. He's talking about a policy question. We all agree discrimination is wrong. How do we solve it? The kids, parents, PTAs, school boards in Louisville and Seattle that decided the best way to solve this problem was just a little bit of overt racial balance. We're doing nothing at the text of the Constitution or its history prohibits. Yet Robert struck it down based mostly on that sentence. And that's just hubris all the way. So what's really interesting to me is I totally understand and find this observation compelling. And yet this sort of strong sense of sort of the sort of the the way that people understand she's just justice roberts is as this kind of center of the road humble sort of judge like why did that reputation stick given what you're observing i'm not sure um you know i i i think that raises a much larger issue probably beyond the scope of this conversation but you and i talked about it before America has this need to treat the Supreme, treat Supreme Court justices as gods of wisdom coming down from their marble temple on a hill to give us their wisdom only when they say it's time to do it, when they're in complete control of the situation. Um, and they don't want to believe, I've had this conversation with very sophisticated constitutional law scholars where I'll, where I'll criticize, for example, I, I do believe Justice Thomas, while being a polite, funny, in-person visitor who will make you feel warm and fuzzy inside, is a terrible human being. Uh, he's lied about taxes. He lied at his confirmation hearing. He lies all the time in his opinions about things. He's a terrible human being. All right. People can disagree with me about that, but they get mad at me when I say that. And then I say to them, all right, was Nixon a terrible human being? Uh, do you think Trump's a terrible human being? Do you think Bill, I happen to think Bill Clinton really in a lot of ways is a very terrible person. Why are we allowed to say those things with no, people may disagree and say, no, you're wrong about Clinton or you're wrong about Trump, but you, but you have a right to say it. Or my governor or my senator or my congressman. We can criticize those people. We're not allowed to criticize the justices. We can criticize the opinions, but not the justices. And I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense. The government officials paid for with our tax dollars who do horrific things. When they do horrific things, we should say that. In Roberts's case, he has been this quiet assassin. So my, my title, my, my title is John Roberts Hubris in Chief, but I'm thinking about a different title, which would be John Roberts the Quiet Assassin, because that's what he is. Um, and uh, parents involved was right away, off the bat, was this first step in that. I don't know how he survives it, but he does. It seems like Teflon, you know, 
rubbing off of him. I think it's more institutional. It seems to me like at least part of it is kind of conservative anger at Chief Justice Roberts based on his unwelcome opinions for them in those few cases you mentioned seem to camouflage a lot of his other decisions and the way he approaches other kinds of questions and problems. I, I think that's right. Um, and now I'm going to say something that you will likely, or most people disagree with, but I'm going to try it again. Um, when, when that decision came down, there were a couple of things that were to me, the NFIB decision. So now we're moving from parents involved to NFIB. So here's, here's evidence number two of, of Roberts's hubris. First is parents involved. In NFIB versus Sibili is the big Obamacare case. Everything he said, okay, that's overstated. Virtually all of the meat of his legal analysis was demonstrably false and wrong in every area. He said the Commerce Clause, and this is a, this is an, a real example of hubris here, aside from the legal merits. So most of us argued that um, health care, health insurance, they're interrelated, obviously. Is a trillion dollar industry, which it is. That's, that's a fact. You can't argue that. Trillion dollar industry affecting the commerce of every state. Now those are facts. How can Congress's power to regulate commerce among the states not extend to the regulation of an industry that is trillion dollars and affects every state? Um, but he said it didn't. And when, and the main reason he said it didn't is because he said that this is a mandate. And Congress can't use its commerce power to issue mandates. So in to buy health insurance or buy anything. So in response to that, a number of very smart scholars, not me, said, but wait a minute. The very first Congress required able-bodied men to buy guns. We've all, and we've had drafts throughout our country. Why are those mandates okay? And then I added to that chorus by saying, we know we can have a military without a draft because we currently have what all politicians call the strongest fighting force on the face of the earth, you know, and we don't have a draft. So one can, so Congress has the power to do what it wants with the military, but there's no power to draft. And making people go to war is the most serious mandate of all ever, maybe, right? You have to go to war. You have no choice. You have to fight. And that's constitutional. So why is that mandate constitutional? and not the mandate to buy health insurance. It is his response to that argument where the hubris kicks in. Because a real judge doing real things under the law would respond to that argument in some material, substantial way, and then we could have a debate. He didn't do that. In a footnote, he said that there were other mandates at the founding, but those mandates weren't under the Commerce Clause, so they're different. Period. Now, every law student knows or is taught, saying something is different doesn't make it different. Why is a mandate to go to war when you don't want to constitutional, but a mandate to buy health insurance when you don't want to unconstitutional? He never addressed that. That's the hubris. That's the point of hubris right there. It's not what judges ought to do. Judges ought to explain, okay, so you're saying that mandates are not allowed under the Commerce Clause um, but a draft is, and here's the difference between the two, and here's why it matters. He didn't do those last two things. He rarely does those last two things, and that's the hubris. More hubris. 
In that same case, as everyone knows, he called the mandate attacks. Now, I don't think there was any legitimate reason for him to do that under the law, but some smart people I respect do. So I'll say, okay, you want to turn a mandate into attacks? I don't think that was a good move or a legally justifiable move, but some smart people do, and I'll let it go. But if it was a tax, then the court had no jurisdiction, full stop, end of the road. The Tax Injunction Act, which, by the way, I think is a very sensible law, says you can't challenge a tax until you pay it. Right? That kind of makes sense, because if we all didn't pay taxes and went to court for three years, we'd keep the money, we'd get the interest, the government wouldn't. And maybe that's a good thing for us, but it's bad for the government. But anyway, we all know you have to pay a tax before you can challenge it. So if it was a tax, the case gets dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. He said it was a tax for constitutional purposes, but not a tax for Tax Injunction Act purposes. That argument is so stupid. And, and Scalia called him out on it, and Scalia was right. It's so, it's, it's, it's an, right? And you're laughing. I mean, it's an incredibly stupid argument. It takes a great degree of hubris to be smart and make that argument. Justice O'Connor, in my opinion, was a very good politician, pretty bad judge, but not among the worst, an amazing, remarkable woman by any standard. Went to law school in the 50s, a remarkable woman. Brian, she wasn't that smart. Okay? She wasn't that smart. So when she made big mistakes, and we could say, well, she's not that smart. We're sorry, but she's just not that smart. She was an appellate court judge in Arizona. How many appellate court judges in Kentucky do you have that would not be qualified to be on the Supreme Court? I know in Georgia, I, I love a lot of my appellate judges. Most of them, maybe not so much. That's what she was. Anyway, Roberts doesn't get that excuse because he is universally acknowledged, and this I agree with, as a very smart person. So to argue it's a tax for constitutional purposes, but not a tax for jurisdiction purposes, takes some hubris. And then finally, I'll stop this monologue. Um, maybe even worse than that is he writes the opinion striking down Medicaid, the Medicaid expansion. He, we now know, although I said this at the, at the time I said, I have no personal knowledge of this. This is my guess. But then eventually his biography gets written and Joan, this God, I can't pronounce her name of, of, of used to be USA Today. And now she's, but she's written the biographies of, of various judges. She's a good journalist. Serious, honest journalist reports that he basically told Kagan and Breyer, you have to join my Medicaid decision to get my vote to uphold the law. That's not hubris. That's just wrong. But leaving that aside, in the Medicaid part run, he said on at least two occasions that this law was retroactive. So the states didn't have fair notice of what they were signing up for. Brian, the law was passed in 2010. It didn't go into effect, the Medicaid part, until 2000, I believe it's 16. And then the federal government was going to pay all of it for like two more years after that. This law could not have been less retroactive. It couldn't have been. It gave the states like five years notice to plan. And if they didn't want to do it, then they had five years or six years to figure it out. Really, they had more than that because after six years, it was still going to be like 95% paid by the federal government. He called it retroactive. He's lying. To call the Medicaid part of the Affordable Care Act retroactive, his word, is a demonstrably false lie. He's not dumb. He's not dumb. He's not, and he's not just reasonably smart like O'Connor. He's very smart. He knows better. That's hubris.
I mean, it strikes me that there's a sort of story out there that John Roberts is like the apotheosis of the small C conservative, right? Like the guy who's sort of like doesn't want to see any major changes, wants to keep everything running at kind of an easy keel, like holding everything else at a reasonable, like sensible, like let's, you know, we're, we're, we're driving the family car on a Sunday afternoon at like 55 miles an hour kind of, kind of guy. And it strikes me you're suggesting that he's actually maybe secretly more radical than that. Am I right? Well, um, that's a great question, Brian. Um, I got to think about it for a second. Um, I, I guess I, I'm not here today to talk about Justice Roberts's politics in the sense, how much of a Republican is he? How much of a conservative is he? Um, I, I certainly can talk about that. I want to keep that separate from this point. I really do. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not even here, as I mentioned earlier, in some of these situations, well, I, whether he's right or wrong isn't the point on these things. The point is it takes an enormous amount of gall to foster the reputation you just spoke of, which he clearly tries to foster, and then do incredibly radical things. And he has done, when I say radical, I don't mean conservative, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. I mean his, his technique of judging is radically not judged, like even by Supreme Court standards. And you know, since I think none of them are judges, that's a pretty serious statement. What he did in Parents Involved, what he did in um, NFIB and what we're going to discuss in a minute in Shelby County, um, is it's not, it's not conservative, liberal, radical or not. It, it, it is not how, it is so obviously not what judges ought to do. So let me defend that with one more example. Everybody talks about Shelby County as this horrible case, which it was, where the Constitution gives the power to Congress to take appropriate steps to enforce the ban on discrimination in voting. Appropriate is normally meant as very deferential, and obviously it should be. Um, everyone knows the Supreme Court strikes down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in, in, in Shelby County and has to do a lot of tortured legal analysis to get there. But, 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 but here's the part of that story that I know people know, but not all of your listeners will, that so smacks of hubris, whether or not the decision is right or wrong. In the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. South Carolina pretty much immediately challenges it. And we get this landmark case, South Carolina versus Katzenbach. Now, one of the things South Carolina said was you're treating the southern states and a few other areas differently than you're treating New York or Minneapolis or wherever. You can't treat different states differently like that without a super strong reason. The court rejected it. And they rejected it absolutely in no uncertain terms and said, before a state becomes a country, before you actually get admitted to the union, you have to be admitted on the equal terms as other states. But once you're admitted to the union, there is no doctrine of equal state sovereignty or, or equal foothold or any, whatever the phrase is, Congress is allowed to treat different states differently. That's what the court said in Katzenbach. I don't care if it's right or wrong for the moment. That's what the court said. No one has ever denied the court said. Then we get 
to the precursor, the predecessor to Shelby County, this Northwest Austin case involving the Voting Rights Act, which ended up being decided on statutory grounds. So the court ducked the constitutional issue. But in that case, Roberts begins his long-term plan of destroying the Voting Rights Act by talking about this idea of equal state sovereignty. And somehow, he cites Katzenbach for the proposition that equal state sovereignty is, is, a, is, a, is something Congress has to overcome when it legislates, which is 180 degrees opposite to what Katzenbach said. And the way he did that is he used ellipses to take out the part of the quote where the court said this only applies to states when they're admitted to the union and doesn't apply after. Did he, Justice Ginsburg called that out in dissent and said, you overruled a decision implicitly by using ellipses instead of just admitting you were overruling the decision. So he knew it. We can't, I think a lot of Justice O'Connor's problems came from negligence. I do. I don't think Roberts, you can't accuse him of negligence here because Ginsburg told him. You cited this case for X. You cited it improperly. Think of the role modeling for law students, that is, that the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, regardless of how Shelby County should have come out or should have come out, took a prior landmark Supreme Court case, overturned it with ellipses without admitting he was overturning it. That takes some degree of hubris that I can't even imagine. So I I think the big question, like the elephant in the room then, is why don't people notice more? And, you know, that's a, that question becomes even more crucial or, 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 or more important when we remember <laughs> that a few years ago, the Supreme Court, uh, all the conservatives, again, not just Roberts, say that uh, laws restricting the amount, the aggregate amount people can donate to political candidates was unconstitutional. In this case out of Alabama called McCutcheon. Um, a guy wrote a check from Alabama to California for a politician. Roberts equated writing that check with speech. That's, of course, stupid. Writing a check to an air conditioning repairman is not speech. Writing a check to a movie, writing a check, excuse me, strike that. Writing a check to my, my uh, even my architect who's redesigning my house is not speech. It's not. Um, and writing a check to a politician is not speech. It does facilitate speech. And the government should have a good reason for stopping us from facilitating speech. But it had a great reason, which was corruption in the political process. All right. So Roberts writes his terrible opinion. At the time, this is now this is before Judge Posner, retired Judge Posner, in his last couple of years on the bench, I'll he's everyone knows he's a close friend of mine, um, said a lot of things I wish he hadn't said. Um, and age does that to people, just does. Um, sometimes medical conditions as well. Um, but this is before that. This is when Posner's reputation was still, of course, he's always been polarizing, but no one denied his brilliance. No one denied his reputation. He wrote an article in Slate that said the chief is one of two things, either dumb or lying. Because he said the only legitimate corruption that a legislature is allowed to deal with in the political process is direct quid pro quo corruption. I'll give you a thousand dollars, you pass a law for me. I'll give you ten thousand dollars, you build a you build a thing in my in my you know my my district. And Posner said, but we all know that money buys access. 
And that if I'm allowed to write a check to a politician for a large amount of money, I'll get in the room. And that kind of, and then, and then Posner said, isn't that corruption in any meaningful sense of the term? I get access you don't get because I give money. And it's something the state should be allowed to deal with. Robert said, no, state can't deal with it. The federal government can't deal with that or states can't deal with that. Um, and Posner said, he knows that goes on. I mean, Roberts has been in politics his entire life. He, he worked for the Justice Department. He knows that kind of stuff goes on. So Posner rhetorically asked the question, is he lying or is he dumb? And then Posner said, he's not. What Posner called indirectly lying, I call hubris. It is hubris to think that you know what kind of corruption a state is allowed to go after when that issue is not resolved by our constitution in any way, way, shape, or form. One kind of big picture question I really have about sort of the perspective that you're, you're offering is sort of what this means about how we should think politically about John Roberts and about the court and about specifically the role of the chief justice of the court. And I think what I really want to know is like, do you think that this is about John Roberts making bad choices because he can't see what he's doing? Or is this about John Roberts making these choices deliberately with a goal in mind? Okay, so I'm not going to speculate on what's inside his head and his heart directly. I am going to say he's a trained lawyer and by all accounts, one of the greatest advocates ever to argue in front of the Supreme Court. Maybe that's overstating it. Everybody said he was an excellent, excellent lawyer. No one denied that. An excellent lawyer doesn't reverse a case with ellipses. An excellent lawyer doesn't pretend that the only imaginable corruption that's a legitimate interest for the state in political campaigns is simply direct quid pro quo obstruct, uh, corruption. Obviously, there's all kinds of indirect corruption that goes on. Um, he does not um, in the Trinity Lutheran case, which involved um, playgrounds in Missouri um, and whether the state could prohibit, could exclude from its playground grant applications, churches, Roberts writes his whole opinion and then in a footnote says this case only applies to playgrounds. What? <laughs> How can a case only apply to playgrounds? Like what possible legal rule? No, I know. All right. So, so, so. What I'm going to say to you is he's an excellent lawyer and a, something like, by the way, I, well, he's an excellent lawyer. He's clearly smart and he does these inexplicable things. Why does he do that? I don't know. But what it, to answer, now answer your question. What it tells us about both him, the rest of the justices and the court that is so important in my opinion is they're people, Brian. They're not gods. They're people. So when NFIB came out, and this was at the beginning, I've been teaching a long time, but this was the, my public, like kind of public persona emerged in 2010. So it's now 2012, but I'm still, um, and I still am, but I, you know, a relative nobody. And I came up with this 
My mom, actually, who's not a lawyer, I told my mom the story of NFIB, every detail. of it. She wanted to hear every word of it. And then she gave me an idea, which was, I think, accurate. If you go back to May of 2012 and April 2012, you will read hundreds of articles in, in, Daily, in, in the Daily Beast, Slate, National Review, from liberal to moderate to conservative, all over the Internet. It's the Kennedy court. It's Kennedy's court. At that moment in time, Justice Roberts, before NFIB, had never, not one time, joined with the liberals in any issue involving the Constitution, ever, not one time. And I am sure that NFIB presented him with an emotionally difficult problem and made him face some hard choices in a lot of different ways. I don't deny that. So I'm not suggesting he did any one thing for one reason. But he's a human being. And I'm guessing in the back of his mind, this was a way to make it the Roberts Court. Because he was appointed Chief Justice in 2005, I think, um, or six. And as six years later, so this is a man who's ambitious. This is not a criticism. Incredibly ambitious person, top of his class everywhere, always, you know, top lawyer everywhere. And now he's the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He, his job ambition could, you know, he's, he's he doesn't want to be, I believe he doesn't want to be president. So where else can he go? And yet it's the, and yet it's the Kennedy court. It's the Kennedy court. Did that affect his vote in NFIB? Because after that, it wasn't the Kennedy court, even though it actually was in reality. But in the media, it was the Roberts court for the first time. Brian, if you got a, if you got, I know your ambition is not to be the world's greatest podcast, but let's say your ambition was to be the world's greatest podcast. Let's say that's your ambition, okay? And tomorrow, Spotify makes you a Bill Simmons deal. I love Bill Simmons. A Bill Simmons deal and pays you $100 million for your podcast. And now you become this world-famous person, but it turns out your producer gets all the credit. And even though it's the Brian Fry podcast, whoever your producer is, is the one who's really behind it all. You'd be pissed. Well, it's the Roberts. Yes, you would. Well, you wouldn't be pissed on hundred million dollars, but you. I'll take. I'll take hundred million dollars. You, <laughs> you, you want it to be the Brian Fry podcast, or MC Dixit, not to you know. Um, for a hundred million dollars, I don't guess. believe. That. <laughs> Fair enough. Me too. I don't. I don't, hey, man, I don't Eric, 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 Eric. I, I, I am literally the person who spearheaded the idea of encouraging people to plagiarize. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we, should have, we should talk about that someday. But anyway, um, so Roberts is, is the chief justice of the Kennedy Court. If you don't, if anyone out there doesn't think that bothered him, and if at some level, maybe subconscious, it didn't. But my point is, that's how we should talk about Supreme Court justice. Can you imagine 50 years from now? Here's an analogy. However, Justice Thomas is remembered, and I hope he's remembered as the partisan hack that he is. But however he is ultimately remembered, his affirmative action jurisprudence will always be somewhat of a mystery. Um, and more importantly, his stated view that the um, condescension he faced at Yale in 1971, 2, and 3, which I'm sure he faced, and I've no, I don't deny him that experience. I'm sure it was horrible. But he has said that condescension was worse than growing up in the segregated South. Okay. 
Now, wait a minute. You're at Yale Law School. I'm sure people are being condescending pricks, and they think you shouldn't be there. The segregated South was a very different place. (laughs) What made him say that, that Yale in 73 was harder than the segregated South? Whatever it was, it wasn't law. And I hope 50 years from now, when people talk about Justice Thomas, his very difficult childhood, growing up with his grandfather in a place that treated them like, you know, second-class citizens, crosses burned on lawns and all that kind of horrible stuff, is at least a piece of the puzzle, right? It's got to be a piece of the puzzle. Roberts being the chief justice of the Kennedy Court, it's unlikely that's not a piece of the puzzle. But even if I'm wrong on that specific application of my principle, which I don't think I am, but even, by the way, everybody, everybody, I want to shout out somebody. When I made that statement on the Pete Dominic show and then wrote about it, I got killed by everybody. What are you talking about? You're playing amateur psychologist, blah, blah. Only Dahlia Lithwick took me seriously. And she actually put me on the Slate podcast to talk about it, which I'll always appreciate from her because no one else took me seriously at the time. No one. Um, but he's a human being who reached the pinnacle of his profession and found himself being overshadowed by, by Kennedy. This was a way to grab that back. So Eric, in closing, what should this make us think about Justice Roberts, about the court, how we think about the court, how we think about justices, and sort of what we should think about the Supreme Court as an institution going forward. Yeah, and and thank you for that. Right, I mean you're great at this. And and, and by the way, I, I had a I'm not sure I'm bringing it back, but I had a limited run podcast and um, doing yours and watching and, and listening to yours all the time really helped. Me. I want to say that. I mean it really did. Um, I'm really glad you asked that question. I want to talk about Justice Kennedy for a minute, okay? And then I'll get back. I'll circle back to Rob. Without Justice Kennedy. Had Judge Bork got that position, you know, as was supposed to be, um, or, or even Judge Ginsburg, your listeners may not know that Kennedy was the third choice. The second choice was Ginsburg, who smoked pot in law school with students. I mean, he's a professor, so back then that was a no-no. Um, so then we get Kennedy. It just so happens that Justice Kennedy, as everyone knows, um, his father was a successful lawyer in Sacramento who had a very, very close, if not best friend who was a gay man, a gay lawyer, who eventually was dean of McGeorge Law School. Kennedy considered him kind of an uncle. He wasn't a blood relative, but he's like an uncle, my uncle. Um, and he saw the indignity and he saw the horror that this man had to hide in the closet for most of his life. And that made him gay rights sympathetic. And that is the reason we have Lawrence versus Texas. That is the reason we have Romer. And that is the reason we have Windsor and Oberg. And it's the only reason. They're all 5-4 decisions. The other four Republicans voted the other way. Well, I guess Stevens was, but he was gone by then. In any event, everyone knows Kennedy was a swing vote. His affinity for gay rights has everything to do with his experience seeing this gay closeted man live in indignity. And that's why he used the word dignity, because he saw the indignity. That's why Kennedy, you know, Bookerfeld, Kennedy uses the word dignity over and over again. That's no different than Justice Roberts heading the Voting Rights Act in 1981 which he did, and wrote a memo as a young lawyer, young hotshot lawyer when he was working for Reagan, saying that the Voting Rights Act is as big a burden on the states as we, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a huge burden on the states. Roberts always hated the voting. Guess what? He becomes a justice, he gets to strike it down. 
Kennedy was always in favor of gay rights. Guess what? He gets to be a justice and he gets to do, implement that view. What I want people to come away with from my work as Justice Roberts, as Hubris, and the reason I'm bringing up Kennedy and gay rights is, as you know, I'm in favor of gay rights across the board, right? I mean, I just am. And I think Obergefell's correctly decided because the Equal Protection Clause says what it means and means what it says in that context. Um, but that's not for ourselves. It wasn't a legal thing for Kennedy. It was a personal thing. I want the American people to understand that they, these are people who put on their socks one at a time, who have values and priors and politics. And then here's the key, and I'll stop. Here's the key point. Don't give government officials a job for life with unreviewable power. Don't. It's stupid. And the Supreme Court commission that's happening as we speak is not really dealing with, as loud as I try to scream it, not just me, Chris Sprigman, NYU, Mark Tushnet for decades, Larry Kramer, Dean of Stanford. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a little tiny, tiny, tiny guy compared to those folks. There have been people screaming for a long time. Don't give these, this job description's wrong and the institution's wrong. And that's what I want people to see. It's not about Roberts personally. Justice Douglas had his foibles. He's a war hero and a terrible person all at the same time. Um, and he stayed on the court after having a stroke and he couldn't even write or read and wouldn't retire. Um, Justice Brennan said five votes is all we need. Talk about Siegel cynicism. How about that? Brennan telling the school, all we need are five votes, we can do anything. Don't give people this job. Change the nature. You can't change the people, so you got to change the job. And that's my problem. Awesome. Well, Eric, as always, it was an incredible pleasure talking to you and hearing about your ideas. And I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great talking to you, always. Riding the range in the cold 
of his Hollywood sweetheart. Her love was as lasting as gold. As he drew near her window, a shadow he saw on the shade. <laughs> Towards a great Philadelphia lawyer, making love to Bill's Hollywood maid. The night was as still as the desert, the moon hanging high overhead. Bill listened a while to the lawyer, he could hear every word that he said. Your hands are so pretty and lovely, your form so rare and divine. Come go with me. Cowboy behind Night back in old Pennsylvania Among those beautiful pines There's one less Philadelphia 